proper for any organization to ask itself every once in a while, why do we exist? What is our purpose? And also, what is our mission? And for Bear Creek Bible Church, we should review this big picture question so we're on the same page and we move forward together. And so we have a strategic mission. It's very simple. It's our mission statement. It's actually on the banners that are behind me right now. It's to know Christ better and to make him known. And so those passages or those ideas come from these two passages, which are also duplicated in other places in Scripture and elaborated on. But to know Christ better really comes from what Jesus communicates to us in Matthew 22. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul instructs us, instructs us in Philippians 3.10 that his desire is to know Christ. And so that is for the person who is the Christian, for the believer, that that is job one for us, to know Christ, and since we know him, and have been reconnected to him and have been reconciled back to him through the work of Christ, through the work of himself, uh, we can know him better and better than we did five years ago, better than we did last year. And so we are to know Christ better. But then there's a secondary purpose as well, and that is instructed by our Lord in Matthew chapter 28, right after his resurrection and before his ascension, he communicated to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So you are to go and baptize and teach. Those are the participles in that, that verse there, as what you are to do, and in your going and as you baptize and teach, that is the process of making disciples. But what is a disciple? We throw that word around a lot. Uh, the Greek word for a disciple is mathetes, which means to be a learner and follower of someone. Not just to know about someone, but actively follow them. So you could be a disciple of really anything. But of course, our agenda is to create and formulate, pull together disciples of Jesus Christ, learners and followers of Jesus Christ. And so, what does that look like? Well, in order to be a disciple, you really have to be a believer first. You can't just get up and go and follow Christ because, really, we come into this world separated from our, our relationship with God. And so, therefore, the thing that has to happen first is that we need to be justified before God. We need to have our sins forgiven, and we need the righteousness of Jesus put in our account. Um, we have to have his righteousness, his holiness, his purity, his innocence in our account. So that way, when the Father sees us, he sees Christ. He sees his own Son. He sees his innocence, his purity, and his holiness projected onto us or imputed to us. Very important. Our sins have to be forgiven, so we have to become believers. But that's not where we're supposed to stop. That is only the beginning of the process. So to become a disciple, you really have to become a believer first. A believer is someone who's not necessarily a disciple, meaning they might just be baby believers. They might have just trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And so what does that mean to trust in Jesus as, as your Savior? 
Well, the Philippian jailer was told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, meaning you will be justified. You will be, your sins will be forgiven and the righteousness of Christ will be put onto your account. And so what does the biblical word belief mean? Uh, pistuo, to believe. What does that mean? Well, I think it means there's three phases to it as it's used in Scripture uh, and other classical Greek sources and so on. So you have three aspects here. You have to understand a proposition. So, okay, I understand that Jesus died. Uh, he died a substitutionary death, so that way we wouldn't have to, to, to die. Jesus took our place. Okay, I understand that, and uh, but that's not saving faith yet, because that's just understanding the first phase. The second phase would be that it applies to me. Okay, so it's possible to believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but eh, it doesn't really apply to me. I don't really think I need it. Well, that's the second phase. Once you accept that, I believe that it applies to me, but then I also have to trust. I have to show. I have to express my faith and trust in Jesus. There's a reliance in Jesus. I have to transfer my trust from something else or nothing else to Jesus in order for that belief to be a saving faith. Okay? That's the third aspect of what belief means. So I have to trust in Jesus. So if I'm a religious person, then I would transfer my trust from the fact that I have perfect church attendance or the fact that my grandfather was a pastor or a priest or in the ministry or something, and, oh, I'm thinking that it applies to me. My family's religious, uh, or maybe I was baptized as a baby or something like that. None of that saves. Not, it's not by works, lest any man should boast. It's only by reliance. In fact, trust in itself is an anti-work. It's the opposite of a work. Because you're not doing anything. You're relying on someone else, just like all of you right now are sitting in chairs, and you're trusting in those chairs to hold you up. And it, you're not doing anything. You're not adding anything to it. And so therefore, to become a believer, we have to trust in Jesus. And so right now, a believer is only justified. He only has a relationship with God. He doesn't really have a fellowship with God. He's immature. He's just kind of like drinking the milk of Scripture. He understands the basic stuff. But he has not begun to be able to digest the meat of the Word of God. But hopefully he's on his way. So he's immature. He only knows and recognizes the unconditional benefits, all the benefits that Christ has done for you, that he died for you. Okay, that's unconditional. The establishment of the relationship. It's rock solid. Jesus said that... No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. That includes yourself. You can't lose that relationship once you've got it. Um, Jesus added on. He said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. <laughs> you know. And then the Holy Spirit's added in. in Ephesians chapter 1, we're sealed in the Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are active in the maintenance of our relationship with God. That's good news. That's what, see, that's why they call it good news. Because if you could lose it, it wouldn't be good news. Right? So therefore, that's why they call it the gospel, which means good news. So that's the unconditional benefits. A believer is not necessarily active because he or she doesn't really know what to do next. So we have a lot of believers, but fewer disciples. 
So a believer is by nature still pretty selfish. In fact, in many way, ways, he or she appears to not be a believer because they haven't been what yet? They haven't been discipled yet. They haven't been shown the way of knowing Christ better. And so a disciple is someone who's a believer um, and who is growing in their faith and who knows that they need to grow and mature in their faith. So they cooperate with the sanctification process. They not just have a relationship with God, but they have fellowship with God. It's kind of like the fact that your biological father will always be your biological father. Even if he gives you up for adoption, there is that fact of history that he's your biological father. But the quality of that relationship may not be that great. And so that is like our fellowship with God. It is really up to us to maintain that fellowship as he maintains the relationship. The good thing is our relationship is based upon the character of God, but our fellowship is based on our character. (laughs) So it goes up and down like this, and hopefully the general trend line is up in our sanctification process. And so a disciple knows the unconditional benefits and also the conditional benefits of being reconnected back to God through Christ. And hopefully a disciple is also reproducing, meaning he's telling other people about Christ and how they can be reconciled back to the Father through Jesus. And a disciple is increasingly less selfish and increasingly more and more sacrificial and other-centered. And so what what are some of the characteristics of a disciple? What does he look like? And it's really important to understand this because this is what we're doing here. We are a disciple-making factory. That is, if you want to put it in such blunt terms, the product that we are churning out, hopefully. We're in the business of making disciples. Someone has once said that a human being is born, a believer is born again, and a disciple is made. So you can have this idea of formal and informal discipleship. So formal discipleship is when you say to somebody, hey, let's get together, or let's study the book of John together, and then I'm going to teach you like, how to witness to other people, and then we're going to go serve, we're going to go work at a soup kitchen, and we're going to tell those people about Christ, and then um, we're going to memorize Bible verses, and we're going to walk through and kind of do a journey of self-discovery and, and try to figure out like, what your spiritual gifts are. And then, and you're, and you're gonna become more mature in your faith, and you're gonna become more resilient and less hypersensitive, and so there's gonna be character changes in you. That's a, a formal discipleship where someone walks you through it. But there's also informal discipleship. Like right now, you are experiencing informal discipleship, because I'm not aimed at any one person, I'm aimed at all of you. Right? And then you go into calibrate class. That's informal discipleship because you're there. You're not being focused on, but you're picking up stuff to grow in your relationship with Christ. So what does a disciple look like? What does he or she look like? Here are just a few of the characteristics of a disciple. First of all, of course, they have to be believers in Christ. They have to be saved in order to grow in their faith. They become learners and followers of Christ. They learn more about him and they learn to love him more. They're willing to deny self, meaning they don't always do it perfectly, but, but generally there is this understanding that I'm going to deny my agenda and I'm going to latch on to the agenda 
that Christ has for us. So their highest loyalty is to Christ, meaning they still have other human relationships where they have some loyalty, certainly to their spouse, certainly to their families. Those relationships are important, but their highest loyalty is to Christ. They're committed to world evangelism. Um, Jesus, right before he left, right after he gave the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, he also says, you will be my witnesses, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, like in concentric circles. So you're to care about the whole world. Of course, it starts in your Jerusalem, but it doesn't end there. I've been part of Bible church world my whole life, and Bible churches usually are really good at world evangelism and world missions, but they're lousy at local outreach. <laughs> you know, We care about the person in Kenya or, 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 or Japan or somewhere else, but we don't care about our neighbors. And so about 10 or 12 years ago, we tried to change that. So we have a lot of local outreach ministries. You just heard about the Back 4 project. That's one of several. So they're committed to world evangelism. They love others and teach truth. They even love their enemies. It's a struggle. They don't do it perfectly, but they know they should, and they have at least mixed results. Sometimes they fail, but yet sometimes they succeed too. And they grow. They're growing in maturity. They're growing in their resilience. They're growing in their strength. Their inner world is blossoming in their relationship with Christ. They are abiding in Christ, meaning they walk with Christ. He is the one who influences them. He is the one who gives them the strength that they need just to get through the day. Um, they make mistakes, and they also sin. They make non-sin mistakes. They make sinful mistakes. But yet they know the process that they need to change their mind about their sin and then confess it to God, and that helps the fellowship aspect of their walk with Christ. And so these are some of the characteristics of a disciple. That's what a disciple looks like, a brief profile, but what does a disciple do? And so I like to look at four venues of a disciple. You'll find a disciple doing four general things. As you take the Gospels and you encapsulate them all and summarize it, we come up with the bottom line. That's what I like. Just give me the bottom line so I can understand it, so I can wrap my brain around it, so that way I have a chance of doing it. So here's four venues of a disciple. And the pastors came up with this about seven or eight years ago when we had a series of retreats. This is what the conclusion that we came to as we did a survey of the Gospels. And so what does a disciple do? Well, he or she is involved in corporate worship as well as individual worship. We tend to be a very individualistic culture. There are some cultures that are hyper-group-oriented and community-oriented and a lot less individually-centered. Our culture is extremely individualistic, but we are called in Scripture to be with one another. Do not forsake assembling with other believers. You are not an island unto yourself. You have to physically be and rub shoulders with other Christians. But you might say to me, John, yeah, but sometimes these people really irritate me. And there are some of them I really don't like. And you know what I say to that? Same thing with me, but do it anyway because they'll irritate you. But then those are the areas of your life where just maybe you might need some sanctification. And they are teaching you it through an unwritten curriculum. So hang in there. There are some people who have been really burned in churches. And we get 
some folks like that on a regular basis. And I congratulate them, and I say, thank you for not giving up on the body of Christ. Thank you for not giving up on the local church. And as a result of that faithfulness, they have made great progress, I believe, in their sanctification because they know it's not about them. They know that it is about our Lord and our sanctification. So there's corporate and individual worship. They have an important, significant quiet time. They're also involved in some type of small group, whether it be a calibrate class, whether it be a flock group, whether it be community Bible study or Bible study fellowship, whatever it might be. They are involved in some group. Why? Well, because you need a place where you can be accountable and hold others accountable. You also need a place where you can ask questions and also interact with other people. It's hard to do that in here, right? I, I don't want it to become a participation service, all right? I don't think you would either. But you still need a venue for that. And so, small group. You might say, well, I don't know about that, but then Jesus also had a small group, so we should have that. So there also needs to be service inside the church to other believers to move them forward on that continuum of discipleship. So we need to serve one another. The service that you might offer is totally different than the service someone else might offer. So there's a whole host of spiritual gifts. There's a whole host of different types of ministries. We're all different, but yet all of them are really important. Um, Some people are up front. Some people are behind the scenes. All of them are equally important in the body of Christ. We also need to think more than just about ourselves. We also need to think about those who have not believed yet. We're excited about the second coming of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's wrap this whole thing up. Let's get it over with. Let's go home to be with the Lord because this is a tough place to live, a difficult time period as well. And so... We're excited about the second coming, but about 40% of the world still hasn't even heard about the first coming. So you and I are called to tell them about the first coming. So why did Jesus come? Jesus came to serve, even to the point of death. And so he sacrificed himself. So that way, belief in his substitutionary atonement can reconnect us and reconcile us back to God the Father. So we're all also called to do outreach and evangelism as well. But what does the build-out look like? You have a passage like Luke chapter 9. It's like, wow, a lot of Christians are tempted to tear this page out of their Bibles. <laughs> because discipleship has a high cost to it. And Jesus said this in Luke chapter 9, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? And the word that's used there for life is suke, which means your soul, your inner being, your identity. And some people, when they do their testimonies, no one used this at the newcomer class today, so I'm not picking on anybody. But sometimes people say, and I understand what they say, you know, I'm, um, I gave my life to Christ when I trusted in Jesus. You know, that's like a synonym for saying that they're saved or they trusted in Christ. But the fact of the matter is, before you were saved, you didn't have a life to give. You were dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking. 
you were still animated, you had a body and a soul, but your spirit was dead. And so you didn't really have a life to give. But once you've trusted in Christ, you were ignited with life for the first time in your existence. And there we are to turn over the life that we've been given back to him. And this defines what a disciple looks like. And there are many days that I don't live up to that. And many days where you don't live up to it either. But I'm a believer and I'm trying to be a faithful disciple. But this is not the requirement for salvation. This is the requirement to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not an impossibility, but it still requires a lot of sacrifice on our part to be able to have that identify you and me. So how do we get others there? How do we move people from being believers to becoming disciples? Well, the church must use its gifts to disciple believers. And if you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Look what it says there. there. This is the formula, if you will. This is the process by which we are to disciple people in a local church context and create the product that we are called to create. Disciples. So look what it says in Ephesians 4, starting at verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so, if you like visual aids, here is a flow chart of basically Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. So every local church, whether they realize it or not, has been given people with leadership and equipping gifts. And in verse 11, Paul lists what they are. Apostles, it means sent ones. That's not capital A apostles like the New Testament, but people who have the gift of going. And so people who are experienced in outreach and missions, you need them in your church so that way they can train other people to share the gospel and also be prepared to go to mission trips. And so when we get ready to go to Mexico, Kyle Davison, our youth pastor, he takes people and he trains them to be prepared to go to Mexico. We do the same thing with orientation on Africa trips and other places. But then there's also the prophet or the preacher, you could say. He uh, trains and prepares by proclamation and motivation. So we need to hear the word of God. But then there's also the evangelist. And that person trains other people to invite new believers into the kingdom of God. And um, he teaches people how to share the gospel in a local context. But then there's also the pastor teacher. And that, in the original language, it's reflected in the NIV, pastors and teachers. They're two different words, but they really mean one thing. And the pastor teacher organizes shepherds and leads. And he doesn't so much always preach the word of God, but he also teaches by explaining some of the details of the word of God. So you see that in a small group context as well as in a calibrate or adult Sunday school context as well. So these leadership gifts, they set goals, they marshal resources, and they implement plans to train God's people. 
That's the leadership equipping gifts. Okay, But then, they are to prepare others, and the word there means to perfect. It means to prepare. It means to prepare a fishing net to capture people, to encourage them to become disciples of Jesus Christ, to be fishers of men, you could say. So there's a preparation process that the leadership equipping gift people do to the large group so that way they can do ministry, so they can prepare others to do ministry in the body of Christ. And that leads to edification. It leads to what the Greek word is oikodoma, which means to build a house, to fabricate a structure, to mature them into unity and maturity. And so that's the process that we see here outlined in Ephesians chapter 4. That's what every local church should do. So what are the efforts of our church to do this? Well, if you went to the newcomer class, you understand that we have what's called sweet aroma. It's a, from a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where our knowledge of God is like a sweet aroma to him. And so it's an acronym for our ministry areas. And within each of those ministry areas, serving one another, worship, equipping adults, equipping children, teens, adult ministries, reach-in, outreach, missions, and administration, all of those have ministries under them. Okay? So we have sweet aroma. The ministries themselves are not the goal. They are only the means that are used to disciple so ministries come and go. There are no sacred cows. If the ministry doesn't work, we get rid of it. If it's not producing a disciple, we let it die. All right? So the ministries are not the goal. They are only a means to disciple. So who trains and who equips us? Well, those ministry areas, the sweet aromas on the left side. Then we have staff people in the center, and then some of those ministries are represented within those sweet aroma ministry areas. The state of Bear Creek Bible Church is good. The numbers are favorable, you know, the giving and the new people, I get it. That's great. Uh, we definitely want to be growing, and we want the resources to be there. But there was a time when we didn't have that. After we moved into this building, we grew, but then we stagnated for about eight to ten years. You know, we gained new people, then some people moved away, other people left, and so we had stagnation for eight to ten years. And then in 2016, things changed. Um, I, we didn't do anything different, so we don't get any of the credit for that. This is just, you know, Apollos plants, Paul waters, and God's one that brings growth. So he gets all the credit and all the glory for that. We're doing things pretty much the same. And then all of a sudden, seven years ago, things clicked in, it seems. And the resources became more abundant and more people. And we've grown, especially in the last three years, we've grown a lot. But I would say that during even those lean years, we were still successful. Why? Because we were making disciples then. And hopefully... 
will not just learn how to handle mediocrity, but will also learn how to handle success, at least as the world sees success. There are some renewed commitments, though. One, this is directed more so at the staff, and I'm going to elaborate on this with the staff of the church, but I'm calling it the 412 initiative. It's based upon Ephesians 412. It's the verse that we've had on the front of the bulletin ever since the formation of the church nearly 31 years ago. So it's like if you're going to have stuff on your website describing your church, if you're going to have stuff on your bulletin, that should be what you really do. (laughs) And so Ephesians 4.12 tells us this, to prepare God's people for works of service so so that the body of Christ may be built up. So the staff people, sometimes it's easier if you just take care of things yourself. And I'm asking them to resist that temptation to just take care of it yourself, but rather to train others and equip them to do the works of ministry so that way there will be maturity within the body. And we've been doing that all along. We have about 60, 65% of church involvement, which is pretty good, but there's always room for improvement. We're also starting a fourth Calibrate class called the Equipping Track. And those classes will be very practical and specific uh, to where you should be able to walk away with a skill. They will be classes like how to disciple other people, how to parent, how to uh, counsel other people, and how to evangelize. And we have about 12 to 15 other topics as well. Those are just, that's just a sampling. And then continue to be assertive in developing more and more small groups. Because that is what develops a foundation of fellowship. As a church gets larger, it also has to get smaller at the same time. Otherwise, you get lost in the crowd. And I don't want that to happen. Because we need to be accountable to one another. Um, we're, not, we're not ranchers, we're shepherds. And so, therefore, we need to know one another. And I'm happy to report that within the last 12 months, of all the people who've gone through the newcomers class, 75% of them are in a flock. And that's not even counting our Wednesday women's and men's Bible studies or any other uh, informal groups that are out there, the Saturday morning men's Bible studies. not including that, those at all. It's only official flock groups. That's 75%. Overall, we have about 64% of the church involved in, sm- in small groups or flocks. The national average is about 20%. I'm almost done. I have a request. I have a request to you. I'm asking you for something. I'm not asking for your money, but I'm asking you for you. I'm asking you to serve. Now, how one person might serve is totally different than another person. There's a multitude of opportunities and ways to serve. I won't even begin listing them. But do not ever miss the opportunity to serve. You might say, oh, I don't know, I really can't do anything. Yes, you can. If you place your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you have your salvation But at the moment that you were saved, you were given at least one spiritual gift that should be and can be used to build up the body of Christ. And so therefore you can. You may not know it yet, but that's 
a good example of a walk of faith that you and I need to take continually. So do not miss the opportunity to serve. You might say, ah, yeah, my spiritual life is pretty dull and boring. I don't want to mess it up by serving. But that just might be the outlet that you need. I've been to Israel a few times, and I know what the Dead Sea looks like, and I know what it smells like. I've been in it. It's dead. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. There's no life in it. It's like got three or four times the salt content as the oceans do. Perfectly good water going into it from the Sea of Galilee through the Jordan River. It pours out into the Dead Sea, and it just stagnates there. And the reason is because there's no outlet. The water can't flow. And so it gets a higher and higher salt content, and nothing can live in it. Don't be like the Dead Sea. That's a request. To find your place of service, let's make that 60% even higher. Finally, a, a personal note as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the reason why I'm thanking you is because you make it easy for me. I'm not saying I have an easy job, but you make it easy for me to preach truth. I have a lot of pastor friends, and there are a lot of topics that many of them would never, ever think about touching or teaching or preaching. But you don't give me any pushback. In fact, you give me encouragement. You don't give me any pushback. I think the reason is because you're here because that is congruent with your expectation. You want to hear truth. If you didn't want to hear it, believe me, I'd preach it anyway. Because <laughs> I don't have... <laughs> Thank you. I'm just like you. I'm running out of time here. <laughs> I don't have time to play games, so I'm either going to do it right or I'm going to get out of here. you know. And I'm going to keep doing it right, I hope. But you make it easy for me because you not only receive it, but the reason why you receive it, I think, is because you expect it, demand it, and want it. So I'm going to applaud you now. You don't have to applaud back. I'm applauding you. Thank you for who you are, and thank you for loving truth. Bear Creek Bible Church is a really special place. The reason why I say it is because I am very confident that even though we have very good human leadership in our elders and our pastors, Christ is truly the one who runs this place. I'll tell you why. It's because historically speaking, it hasn't happened recently because there's been no need for it, but a few times in our church history, we've had where the elders are making a decision, you have the minority view and the majority view, and we say, you know, let's just put this on the shelf for a couple of weeks and we'll come back together. And a couple of weeks go by, and the majority submits to the minority, or vice versa, and there's unity. See, that, that's not a world thing. That is, a, that is evidence. That's a hardcore evidence that something spiritual, something um, wholesome, something innocent, 
something healthy is going on here. Our responsibility is not to create that because we can't. But our responsibility is to do all we can to maintain that unity that God has given to us as a gift. So let's keep doing what we're doing and do it even better than we did it yesterday. Is that okay? Are we good with that? Good. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you for who you are and who you're making us into being. So we pray that we would truly um, cultivate um, and expect and give great joy to when we experience the mind of Christ. Thank you for truth. Thank you for grace. And they do not contradict each other. They deeply and thoroughly complement one another. So help us to do that and continue to turn out a good product here. Help us to make disciples of Jesus. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.